Excuse me. Excuse me, miss? Hi. Is that the way you look? Is that the way you look? So you'll be at the mall for six hours. Mother! Stupid! He's cute. Look at those buns. Don't you want to pop his buns? Is that the way you really look? Dad, you really should do something about Connie. Is that the way you look? Too sexy. Do you uh, want to get something to eat? Well, what do you want to get? I want to get what you've got. <laughs> oh, darling, darling. Hey, kid. Where you been? Took a walk. We missed you. I look right in your eyes. All I see are a bunch of trashy daydreams. Hey, girls, gather There's this guy. He's asking me questions about you. He stopped me on the street. You shut up. Hey, you're cute. What's the matter? Would you blame me or what? So, uh, this guy's been asking about me. I thought you didn't want to talk about it. special. You're crazy. Could be nicer to your mother. Just be careful. That's what we're both trying to say to you. I come along just when you need a friend. Ah! I know all about you. And I'll hold you so nice and tight you won't need to think about anything. Even if you're scared. God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 224, Smooth Talk. The energy flowing in the studio right now. Ready for a big app. I'm all fired up. I'm all <laughs> fired up to talk about Smooth Talk. This is maybe my favorite movie that you've turned me on to out of nowhere. What? Yeah. Get out of here. I just... I don't know. You're just like, there's this movie, Smooth Talk. You, you need to watch it. The and Stoned Age? That's up there, too. But this one came out of nowhere, and you know, you let me borrow the DVD, and I'm I'm picturing, like, Valley Girl. That's what I was thinking that this was going to be. <laughs> like, right. And I think kind of Keith thought the same thing, because, of course, you know, pay it forward. And when this came out on Criterion, I was like, you got to get Smooth Talk. And he did. And, and he kind of... Had the same thing. I think, you know, if you and I are recommending something, you know, I think people start to think, like, she's the man, like, Spring Breakers. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> but, yeah, this movie is awesome. It, it, it was, like, shockingly haunting the first time I watched it. I think that for some people it might be boring. It just sort of depends if you if you key into it. It's sort of a subtle thing. 
I think you have to get on the same wavelength as the movie for it to work, the right mindset. But yeah, it, it's probably one of the more obscure picks that we've done. I think last episode we mentioned that this was going to be a one for us type situation. And by that, we meant something that we like that we sort of know that a lot of our listeners might not be as familiar with. Until you just handed me this DVD a couple of years ago, I had never heard of this. I consider myself a top-tier Laura Dern fan. <laughs> All right, so before we talk about Smooth Talk, let's remind the listeners to follow the show on Twitter, at GreatestPod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, wherever. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you'd like. We always appreciate it. If you'd like a sticker, you can let us know on Twitter, at GreatestPod. That is free. And we will just send that to you. Throw that in there, yeah. And follow us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, Matt Crosby. That's where it's at. Absolutely. Always love uh, getting in the comments on there, you know, interacting with people. Yeah, you can see what Smooth Talk has on there as a rating, see what people are thinking about it, as well as pretty much any other movie ever. Sort of fun to log what you're watching. And then I think at the end of the year, it might be interesting to look back and see what you've watched, see what your friends have watched, oh, etc. Yeah. So let's get into it. This might be a shorter episode, not really sure. Every well, time we predict, it's well, the opposite. <laughs> it could inspire a lot of conversation, but it, yeah, it is a 90 or 91 minute runtime. Yeah, and I don't know that there's necessarily a lot of plot at first. Yeah. Although it, I love the way that this movie is structured. It's like an hour of life, hanging out, whatever, endless summer, nothing to do, and then this like final half hour sequence that's like almost mostly one scene. Yeah. According to IMDB, Smooth Talk is the story of a free-spirited 15-year-old girl who flirts with a dangerous stranger in the Northern California suburbs and must prepare herself for the frightening and traumatic consequences directed by Joyce Chopra who came mostly from the world of documentaries and this was her first narrative feature and she was already about 48 years old at the time and it's a home run the screenplay was by her husband Tom Cole and Chopra as well based on a short story called where are you going where have you been by Joyce Carol Oates. Yeah, the two Joyces. And her story was inspired by the Tucson murders committed by Charles Schmid, who killed about three to four girls around 1964 to 65, and he was known as the Pied Piper of Tucson. And she was originally writing it more about the male character, right? Yes. Like the, the serial killer. That was going to be like the main character of the story. Yeah, and her explanation as to why the story is dedicated to Bob Dylan, it sort of serves as like why it ends up being more about the Connie character because she was really focused in on the song It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. I don't really know if that makes sense, but it's hard to sometimes explain, I guess, what's going on in a writer's mind as to why that all works. Sure. Smooth Talk stars Laura Dern and Treat Williams. And I first came across it during what I consider to be the glory days of IFC Channel, the independent film channel, which used to be a channel that you could just get on cable, which it still is. Oh, yeah. However, there would be no commercials during the movies, and the movies would be unedited. 
Right. So it was like having a free movie channel. Yeah, IFC used to be great. And it would play a lot of stuff that maybe you weren't super familiar with, maybe you had never heard of before. It's how I discovered The Hot Spot, which has become like one of my favorite movies ever. And around that same time period, yeah. I see a movie coming up on the the little guide on the screen saying Smooth Talk, starring Laura Dern, had never heard of it. This was probably over a decade ago easily at this point, maybe more. And I just watched it, and I was in ever since. Same with The Hotspot. I just love these movies and have always remembered them. And whenever I got serious about physical media and buying Blu-rays and I saw that all of films had put out Smooth Talk, I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, I'll buy that. And so I still have it now, even though I also picked up the Criterion recently, the new restoration. Yeah, this was a, a nice surprise for me, like not having something on my radar at all. And then within... A short period of time, you know, whatever it is, a year or something, then Criterion comes out with this awesome Blu-ray. Yeah. Because it's like, I'm sure there's people that could have been, like, pining for something like that for years. For me, just a short I don't wait. know. I, I think that this movie was definitely under the radar. I think it was well, that's true. an 80s yeah. independent movie at a time when independent movies, it was much harder to get any recognition or for people to know about it at all. And I think that... The legacy of this film will be that it's probably more relevant now than ever, and I think it's more what people are looking for. I think on one of the bonus features, director Joyce Chopra mentioned that it came out around the same time as Pretty in Pink, and she was basically like, that's what teenagers wanted to see in the 80s, and this was not what they were looking for, and this movie was largely ignored and forgotten. And I think now based on a lot of social changes and the endless evolution that we go through as a society, I think this is more of what's right up people's alleys. And if this movie came out now, especially in a year like last year when there weren't a lot of films, I mean, it probably would have been nominated for Best Picture. Oh, yeah. I'm not even really exaggerating For sure. A female director making... I mean, the content is certainly at least somewhat edgy. Yeah, it's subtle in a way that I think still people can relate to and respect and understand what it's about, but it's also, it really hits home. It's a coming-of-age story from the female perspective about a young girl, but the things that happen in the film are timeless. It's based off of a story that came out in 1966. Oh, yeah. The movie's made in 1985. And in 2021, I still think that everything that happens in it feels probably very relatable totally. to women and young girls who probably mostly went through shit like this. Maybe not as bleak as this could well, potentially sure. be, but a lot of stuff similar to it. I uh, was watching this this time around almost getting some shades of Death Proof. The, the True <laughs> yeah, Williams character is is kind of similar. Like his whole approach and like predatory nature is, it, it feels like the Kurt Russell character in Death Proof is kind of similar. I don't know if there is any influence there for Tarantino, but it was reminding me of that a bit. It's weird to say this, and I don't want to over exaggerate it, but when we saw the movie, I don't want to give away what the spoiler is, but when we saw the movie Arrival, there's oh, yeah. a huge spoiler in the movie. Yes, and I it know what sent you're like a shiver down my spine in the theater, and it just made me like tingle. I was like, "Holy shit!" Oh yeah, it was such a weird sensation twist that I wasn't expecting. Some people are probably thinking like, "Oh my god, how could you not have been expecting that?" But it definitely worked on me. Sure. And even though there is nothing in Smooth Talk like that, 
when you read about what the inspiration was for the initial story and then you sort of see this ending of this movie right i kind of got like a similar tingly feeling of like oh my god there's a lot of possibilities there i think my imagination probably ran a little bit wilder than what was intended i think that's what i meant when i was saying surprisingly haunting because the sensation i had at the end was just kind of out of nowhere i wasn't really uh prepared to feel the way that I felt at the end based on how the rest of the movie had gone to that point. So let's give people a little bit more context as far as the real-life basis. I'm going to read a quote from the writer Joyce Carol Oates. She says, I have forgotten his name, but his speciality was the seduction and occasional murder of teenage girls. He may or may not have had actual accomplices, but his bizarre activities were known among a circle of teenagers in the Tucson area. For some reason, they kept his secrets, deliberately did not inform parents or police. It was this fact, not the fact of the mass murder himself, that struck me at the time. Well, you can understand why. That's chilling. It's kind of like the River's Edge thing. And this was a pre-Manson time. This was the early or mid-1960s, and this is from an article in the New York Times entitled, When Characters from the Page Are Made Flesh on the Screen. It came out March 23rd, 1986, so that's right after the film has been made. And yes, I jotted down River's Edge as well. Okay. And I also thought about the Me Too movement, which we'll probably talk a little bit about as we go through this and sort of the ties between this movie and basically the bullshit that has been going on forever nothing's really changed since this movie came out or when the short story was written in the first place but that secretive thing where clearly a lot of people knew what was going on right right they may not have been the perpetrators themselves but because of professional pressure or whatever they felt like it was acceptable to keep secrets or turn a blind eye or whatever yeah yeah and that's not too dissimilar to what Oates is describing here with the, the killer, Charles Schmid. And the actual descriptions of what that case was all about, it's just really odd, and he was such a weird dude. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we maybe meet the Treat Williams character, Arnold Friend, and like the similarities and some of the stuff they pulled from it. But it seems like the real-life version was nowhere near as charming as I would think Treat not. Williams. Yeah, he might be more like, what? what's his sidekick's name? Like Ellie or something? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Quote, the Pied Piper mimicked teenagers in their talk, dress, and behavior, but he was not a teenager. He was a man in his early 30s. Okay. Rather short, he stuffed rags in his leather boots to give himself height and sometimes walked unsteadily as a consequence. Did none among his admiring constituency notice? I should uh, try that move, by the way. (laughs) He charmed his victims to the bewilderment of others who fancy themselves free of all lunatic attractions. The Pied Piper of Tucson, a trashy dream, a tabloid archetype, sheer artifice, comedy, cartoon, surrounded, however improbably and finally tragically, by real people. You think that if you look twice, he won't be there, but there he is. And so I think that's a good background for this character Uh, and this story. I think the movie itself integrates Arnold Friend into the opening portion of the film effectively. But a lot of what's added to the film from the initial short story focuses on Connie and her relationship with her mother and her family and her friends right, and things like that. Because ultimately, I think it is more 
important sometimes to remember the victims of things rather than the monster at the center of the things. That's right. So a lesson that I think is sort of imparted to us in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood even, where you barely even see Charles Manson in the movie. Sometimes as a culture we fixate on the... Well, you know what? The scene at the the house you know, that we'll talk about in depth later, that actually does kind of feel similar to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when he's at Spawn Ranch approaching the screen door. (laughs) Yeah, aesthetically. Yeah. I think the stakes are slightly different but yeah i kind of get what you oh, mean oh well i think that there's an uneasiness to the scene also in once upon a time in hollywood though too well yeah the vibe is the same but i yeah, think yeah yeah i think the stakes are a little well for sure different okay. i think yeah. we feel confident in cliff booth it being able to beat some ass <laughs> there's a question at the center of smooth talk an unanswerable question maybe or at the very least a very difficult one we certainly didn't know the answer in 1966 when Joyce Carol Oates first published her short story, and we still didn't know in 1985 when Joyce Chopra adapted that story into a film. It turns out that society was still pretty clueless in late 2017 when the Me Too movement exposed an infinite darkness concealed beneath the surface. Honor Moore, in her essay entitled Girl Power in the Smooth Talk Criterion Blu-ray, frames the question as this. Quote, how do we take care of girls, provide them with resources to keep them safe without compromising the independence they need to become adults? And that's sort of the question in Smooth Talk, because a big buzzword nowadays is victim blaming. And this movie does a pretty good job of not victim blaming, even though definitely in that era, I think some people probably would have perceived the movie as equally Connie's fault in some way, even though it's absurd, but that's just sort of the era in which it was released. Mm -hmm. But this is an unanswerable question, in my opinion. It's unfortunate. I think the only thing you can do is to try to make things better, have belief in victims, have stronger penalties, have more education. But we'll get to this when we talk more about Arnold Friend in that final half-hour scene, but I think the issue is that shit like this is always going to happen. And so what is the answer? I know that some people don't want to hear that, and that might be like a controversial thing to just admit. But I think it's naive to be like, well, if we just educate people more, or there's some idea that these people don't know what they're doing is wrong. It's like, I think a lot of these people know what they're doing is wrong, and they Uh, do it anyway. Right. That's never going to change. So what is the answer then to fix these problems? Because obviously we can't treat women differently than men you can't watch over them at all times as if they're children all people need freedom at a certain point to be able to develop socially develop emotionally things of that nature connie's supposed to be 15 years old it seems like she has sort of a bumpy relationship with her mother she's bucking for freedom at this point oh yeah she wants to get out into the world and she thinks she has all this power she has this power over men, but she doesn't really understand the consequences of existing in that universe yet. Despite several brushes that seemed like they could go poorly, right? I would say 70% of the dudes that are in this movie are creeps, which is probably the right percentage. <laughs> well, I do think that there's a differentiation between the quote-unquote typical teenage bullshit. For sure. Which, okay, in 2021, 
a lot of the guys in the beginning part of the film would probably not be viewed positively either. But I think they're making like a delineation in the film where those are her peers. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're always yeah. acting good or for sure or being decent. But that is for better or worse, where she and her friends need to be. Now, right. obviously, teenage boys can be capable of tons of horrible things. Well, I don't think this the... film is taking the time to really yeah, yeah. delve into all of that. But that is her space, and there's ways of escaping for her at various points, which we'll talk about. And yeah, there is definitely some gray area there, but there's a clear distinction between what happens in the beginning of the film which is a world that she's like almost ready to be a part of uh, right. versus something that she has like no idea what's going on. Well, yes, and, and obviously will her change her in a way that she'll never be the same as she was before. Yeah, and the ending is interesting because I think a lot of feminists have viewed it as somewhat triumphant, as like, yes, this horrible thing has happened, but there is sort of a a power exchange back to her. Which I, I think that is there, but I mean, of course there's always going to be, if you're taking a positive out of that it's only going to be bittersweet when you are talking about the loss of innocence yes but unfortunately these same people who are making that point might be saying that that's like a given yeah their pessimistic attitude might be that almost every woman experiences some sort of situation like that it might not be as traumatic it might be way more traumatic but if you come out on the other side still alive then it's just sort of like the baptism by fire thing or something. Right. I don't know. These are I mean, all it is a dark topic. Gray areas that yeah. we're sort of trying to navigate, which is why I think this film is so interesting because it sort of confronts these things head on and then has such an ambiguous ending that you can think about and try to figure out and decide. And then like I said, the question at the center of the film feels unanswerable. It feel there's really no satisfaction as of yet, as to an answer, you know? What, oh, absolutely. What can we do? You can't just shelter young girls forever. I mean, it's just not realistic. It's not good for anyone. Yeah, that doesn't work out either, as we talked about in the uh, Romeo and Juliet episode. <laughs> but it's naive to think that just because you're right, sort of the audacity of righteousness, well, it's wrong. The boys are wrong. We need to hold men accountable and boys accountable. Yes, that's true, but that doesn't just magically make the problem go away. That doesn't just mean that this is going to stop. Post-Me Too, did rapes just stop? Did that never happen again after that we exposed things? It's like, no, of course not. In terms of like an individual girl, Connie or anybody else, right? just because there's some hashtags on Twitter and people are saying like, you know, this is great, we're moving... It doesn't mean that they won't have to deal with something like this because it just seems like inevitable that it's still part of society. Do you know what I'm saying? I do, and if it hasn't been made clear to anyone yet, this is definitely not like Valley Girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely like a, a more serious topic, which is why I think it attracted Criterion and why it got the anniversary restoration last year. And why it's finding a more modern audience now after oh, definitely. sort of being well, obscure I, for a long time. Yeah, I mean, the the vibe and the message certainly, like you said, I mean, I'm sure it has rang true for years before this and for years to f come, it will. I think it's an important film that it would be cool if it was available and shown to young kids, 12, 13, 14, yeah, in that definitely. age group. 
and then to have discussions afterwards, maybe in a classroom setting, something like that, to sort of unpack what they're seeing, what they're feeling, what they're thinking about it. But right now, you just sort of have to make do with it existing in the Criterion Collection. It's probably no, that's good still going to remain pretty obscure. Yeah. <laughs> I got to give Joyce Chopra a lot of credit, too, because, I mean, aside from the material and where this movie heads, I think from a stylization standpoint, it's really cool, too. The way that she sort of paints this life for the first hour of the movie, and you like a hundred percent buy this. It feels completely like genuine. That every character seems pretty real. Maybe Levon Helm as the dad is a little too dopey, but <laughs> I get like what they're going for, though. Yeah, yeah. But I- I'm a hundred percent in on it. And then by the time like the Treat Williams angle starts, it's just like suspense for whatever twenty minutes, and then it reaches its ultimate conclusion and then kind of has like a cool ending too i just think it's like i mean such a masterful job directing this yeah i think her experience with documentaries helps it lends itself to sort of a casual 70s free-flowing feel to it it doesn't really feel like it exists in the 80s which helps because there's something about the quality of 70s cinema that helps it feel more timeless than certain 80s films like i know we keep referencing valley girl a lot I happen to really like Valley Girl, but Valley Girl exists in the early 80s. Oh, yeah. You don't really confuse that with existing right, somewhere right. else. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Smooth Talk takes place in Northern California. It's not exclusively to LA or anything right, like right. that. It's not like a Beverly Hills vibe. There's not crazy fashion choices or anything. It could be 1975, 1985, 1995. I mean, at a certain point, yeah, things would look way more modern if it was like 2005 or something but but even some of the places there i mean they're going to like the drive-in movies and like this like hamburger place that kind of seems out of another decade a little bit like i mean I, yeah like a holdover time. from like the 50s yeah or something. i mean they do spend time at the mall which feels more 80s but yeah but yeah i mean a lot of the locations do feel a little bit out of another decade connie wyatt played by laura dern is a restless 15 year old who is anxious to explore the pleasures of her sexual awakening Before she enters her sophomore year in high school, she spends the summer moping around her family farmhouse. And the opening portion of the film is punctuated with outbursts from a never-ending battle between Connie and her mother, Catherine, played by Mary Kay Place. Oh, yeah. The big chill. A big part of it is put-downs from her mother. (laughs) She holds Connie's sister, June, up as this example of how to be. That's right. June is definitely beloved in the family. The text of the short story, though, conveys June as 24 years old, still living at home, which at that time was sort of a big deal, I think, especially for a woman, not really going anywhere. Sort of a okay job at the local high school where Connie goes to school. That's which true. Which embarrasses Connie in a way. Yeah. June is seen as every parent's dream, I think, because she never really got involved in anything we've grown up more in an era where like people go to college and then you know move back home and to live at your family home like into your 20s is more of a thing i don't think that was really the case in the 80s well no and especially not in 1966 when the short story came out and she was definitely not a college graduate oh yeah yeah so that means she graduated from high school and then spent like the next six years just sort of living at home still but clearly Catherine thinks that June is the ideal daughter in a lot of ways, but 
and we'll talk about this more, it's more than just, quote, Connie's trashy daydreams that is the problem here. Although I do love that line, and I'm always like, man, if we ever have to start a new show, maybe that's the name of it. <laughs> trashy daydreams. Yeah. I think that's a that's right from Oates' story. But as Mary Kay Plays put it in one of the supplemental features on the Blu-ray, Connie is an alien in this family. Oh, yeah. She doesn't really look like the other members of the family. She's blonde and beautiful, but also smart and charming. They don't She's know how to like tall. handle this situation. No, they don't. And it's, I guess Levon Helm is kind of like fucking the dad from Virgin Suicides, too. Yeah, <laughs> He's got in his some hands ways. Full in this family. Connie stands out. She wants to be something more. She possibly reminds her mother of how life has passed her by. Maybe her mother wanted to do more, and now it's gone. It's interesting to me how young Mary Kay Place, though, was at the time. I think she was 36, which would have meant that she had Connie when she was 21, but would not have been old enough to be a 24-year-old's mother. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, she's definitely like playing older. And I think it's a testament to their performances that you never really question that Mary Kay Place is her mother, even though... Age-wise, it's sort of a stretch, but also they don't look anything alike. Yeah, I would say the three women in the family are all super strong. This whole thing with Laura Dern being able to like almost like like a chameleon jump back and forth between seeming old and seeming young. Yeah, it's just like great throughout the whole movie. Yeah, and the mother-daughter relationship is a creation for the movie. The Joyce Carol Oates short story is very short. And a huge part of it is just the final confrontation between Connie and Arnold Friend. And yes, it does talk about some strained feelings between the mother and daughter, and it sort of glosses over all of this stuff. But there isn't specific dialogue, really. Yeah. There aren't specific scenes. It's all vo- almost like a summary leading up to the to the end. And I think that they did a great job in establishing who Connie is while not stripping the original short story of any of its power. It's like a perfect encapsulation of this teenager that makes the end sequence even more powerful because now you relate to this character even more. And I think the performance from Dern and also the writing led to them altering the ending of the story to not make it as grim of an ending as it is originally. Okay, yeah. More (laughs) of an implied grimness. But Connie has this strange relationship with her family where, yes, the father is checked out, but her mother and sister sort of hate her, but at the same time yeah, they're definitely want her like, approval and I, love her. Is it fair to say that it, maybe there's a jealousy there? Oh, yeah. You know, I mean... Yeah, but that's it's definitely like, a part of it. How do we handle this girl? <laughs> yeah, because it doesn't seem like they can necessarily relate to her in the way that would make yeah. the most sense. I, I was dancing around that because, you know, you don't want to just confidently say that, but there's... What are you supposed to do? This girl is like undeniably pretty in a way that stands out. Yeah. She's different from them in in a lot of ways. And it bothers them on a purely primal jealousy way. But also there's a lot of sadness that Connie's growing up and sort of pulling away. And Connie's naive to it a little bit. She doesn't really get it. And that kind of bubbles up a couple times in (laughs) the way that she says certain things. And like it basically offends Either the yeah, mom and her or the naivete is also infuriating to them, yeah, too. Absolutely. Like, come on. Yeah. You <laughs> knock it off. Yeah. There's this delicate innocence at the start of the film. Connie and her friends are sleeping on the beach. They're 
existence is sort of propped up by a series of white lies that they yeah. tell their parents. I think I watched this twice to get ready for this, and it took me to the second time to really, I think, grasp this. That like I was trying to figure out the whole situation here. It's like they go to the mall. And, and then, then they go other places without yeah, their parents knowing. Right. They must hitchhike to the beach, right? I mean, they hitchhike Presumably, to get back. Yeah. But then they fell asleep on the beach. Yeah. This is some life. Connie's father, played by Levon Helm, somehow manages to float around the family tensions. He seems super content oh, yeah. with his life. And, well, he's always ha- actually having to like comment on how content he is with his life. Yeah. Boy, isn't it a surprise I ended up here. Who would have thought I'd be sitting out on my porch smoking a cigarette in the summer? <laughs> like, He doesn't seem like he had high expectations right, for life, exactly, so he's yeah. pleased by anything. Yes. And he's also so willing to believe anything that Connie tells him. That's right. Which is a stark contrast to her mother, who sort of sees through the bullshit a lot of the time. <laughs> well, yeah, he's always just like, and your mother's okay with this? And she's like, yeah. And he's like, oh, okay. Yeah, and I do think that there was, probably not as common now, but there was a generation of fathers who felt this way about their teenage daughters. They just didn't really know what to do, and so took the approach of do nothing, checking out. Yeah, Your mother's involved. That's good enough. You I, guys I don't all really get have a great this. day. I'm going to go set up my fold-out chair Me. and drink beer. Yeah. Yeah, and you. Real, absolutely, no question. Catherine's obsession is working on the massive unfinished house. There's a lot of painting and oh, scraping yes. of paint and a lot of stuff. jokes within the family, or I guess commenting on the fact that uh, she's been working on painting the house for three years. This is just like never going to end. It's this endless thing, but it's also a metaphor for Connie. The house is unfinished. Right, Connie's right. unfinished. Yeah, It's sort of this awkward stage i guess is maybe the best way to phrase it speaking of going back to what i was talking about with the directing there's something that joyce chopra does a few times within this movie one is certainly kind of ends up being the iconic shot of the movie i feel like but it's like this weird thing where like one actor is in like the front of the frame and another one is towards the back it's like fixated that way you see that pop up three or four times throughout the movie and it's pretty cool and then of course it all kind of culminates in a very key one later in the movie. They were very complimentary of James Glennon, the cinematographer on the film, Laura Dern and Joyce Chopra. And yeah, there are a few very iconic shots. I think I actually have in my notes a specific one that we'll get to. Oh, yeah. That's like very sure. cool looking. Connie passes the time cruising the local shopping mall with her friends and flirting with boys. As Matt mentioned, Dern has the ability to look like an adult in one scene and a child in the next. And almost behaviorally, too. Yeah. She's talked recently about her own naivete regarding the role and all of the implications of the role. She was initially cast around the age of 15, which is the same age as the character, and I think they ended up filming when she was 17. And I think probably one of the best examples of sort of the underlying ideas of the movie is Connie and her friends' behavior at their mall, where they're obnoxiously flirty, they're very aggressive and loud. It's all just a laugh. There is this obliviousness of what they're doing. It's all carefree. And I think that it's this mashup of innocence and sexuality that everybody, male or female, yeah. goes through where they don't really quite get it, and yet they're sort of flaunting it and running around with it. 
and in reality, these girls are sort of running around with like Uzis at a For mall, sure. right. but they don't understand <laughs> yeah. like what they're doing and what they might be attracting. Well, I know this is sort of a weird subject matter for two guys in their 30s to discuss but i think this is all documented on the blu-ray and you can it's very clear i feel like for anyone who has a brain (laughs) because they pointed out in the the mall sequence like they're they're doing these things and then they kind of like run into these two dudes who are like older clearly a problem yeah and they kind of have to like escape that situation and those guys are being like more forceful and i think it's implied that because of these vibes that they're putting out and what they're running around doing it, it kind of leads them to this situation yeah, I think every girl sort of understands this, that at a certain point, you're not only going to attract the attention of your peers and of the age-appropriate people, you start attracting the attention of older men. I think this has been talked about in countless things over mm-hmm. and over. This is sort of what this movie is about. And when they're together and they're in public in the mall, it's all sort of a laugh. They can get away from it. And then... The movie takes you down a yeah. more of a dark corridor eventually. But before we get to the dark corridor, it is kind of fun having the perspective flipped from what you're used to seeing a little bit with like these girls just, oh man, check out that guy's buns. <laughs> They're just like walking around like a lot of buns talk. talking about checking out dudes. I don't know. It's just kind of fun because you're so used to seeing in the movies the opposite. It's like some high school dudes walking around like cruising for chicks and like yeah, it's fun getting that perspective flipped. Yeah, there weren't a lot of movies in 1985 that were told from this perspective. Absolutely. For sure. And the dialogue is a little bit more sexually suggestive than I even remember. Now, this is a PG-13 film. It never really goes too far with anything. But I think Connie does mention getting her a guy's bone hard or oh, touching yeah. his bone there's a couple few, of times. There's a few references to bone. Yeah. <laughs> But not bone is like the verb. It's it's a noun in this instance. <laughs> well, no, I think bone is always a noun. I think you mean it the other way. Like getting a bone. Yeah, well, I was thinking like <laughs> they boned is oh, more, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. more the use that I would expect. Oh, well, I was thinking like short for boner. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. <laughs> People were just like, okay. Uh, we were with you for a while, but click. Just, <laughs> yeah. We'll wait till next week. End the episode. <laughs> The girls, especially Laura, which is one of Connie's friends, and Connie, there's three at first, and then Jill sort of fades. Well, she gets herself into a situation, right? Is she the one that's supposed to be pregnant? No, I don't okay. think so. All right. When they talk about one of the, one of the girls, I think that's being just pregnant, a girl just un- in the area, just an unknown. I think. Yeah. Okay. All right. Because she does fade from the narrative, and Arnold's friend brings her up, right, as to like not being around anymore. Yeah, but that's just an example of how he knows every everything, detail. right? But we'll talk about that later, because yeah. I think there's like a... I feel It feels funny, like just how we keep calling him Arnold Friend, which is the name or alias that he's using, but it's just like funny. <laughs> Arnold a Friend. A Friend. Yeah. Connie and Laura are very interested in, in exploring Frank's, which is an older kid's spot. It's a hot dog hamburger place across the street from the movie theater that they sometimes go to. I wonder if they have a buffalo chicken pizza. And this is straight from the original text. But it's an idea that they convey very well in these excursions to Frank's. Connie is one version of herself at home, one version of herself everywhere else. Definitely. You see this in the clothing choices. Attire changes, that's right. Yeah. Which is something you see over and over again in depictions of teenage girls. Like the clothes that they pretend they're leaving the house in and what they're really wearing. (laughs) 
little duality there. The first time they go over there to Frank's, there's some foreshadowing. There's a mysterious stranger lurking. He actually points at Connie and says, I'm watching you. <laughs> and she just doesn't really know how to react to yeah, this guy. Well, One of the first boys she meets is named Jeff, who's actually the dude from Fright Night. Oh, wow. I didn't put that together. He might have a small part in something else, too. Like yeah. maybe Fast Times or one of those movies. Can't remember. Connie's got these romantic dreams in her head. She wants romantic love, but she doesn't quite understand what that means yet. Ultimately, it leads to a heavy petting session with Connie narrowly escaping from this guy. It's a different guy. It's not Jeff. She's moved on to, I think, Eddie or whatever his name is. That's right. Wait, is this the parking garage? Yes. Rendezvous? Okay. Which has like a very It Follows feel to it yeah <laughs> this dude just like driving a girl to like an abandoned parking garage right. in the middle of the night i'm like who is he me <laughs> <laughs> except me at like 30 with another 30 year old <laughs> where the girl's just like are you fucking serious yeah, right yeah. now <laughs> <laughs> hey babe i got some wendy's <laughs> what more do you want <laughs> as uncomfortable as this might seem to some of us now as i said before this is still teen on teen stuff it's rough, and I'm not, we're not debating it. Obviously, you want to see the movie like eighth grade or something. Oh, yeah. Teen on teen stuff can still be traumatic, but Oof. this is like a different universe. Yeah. For better or for worse, this is the universe that she's going to have to navigate all through high school. This but, is almost yeah. expected. And this incident definitely shakes her. It ends up being just a bad situation all around because she leaves, and then she's by herself. Her friend yeah. is gone. There's no one to pick her up. Yeah, this guy feels older, yes, but it also feels very common for just forever. Mm -hmm. And it's a near miss, and she ends up having to walk home because her friend gets busted for going over there and then just leaves. Yeah, which seems insane. You are like, how much did she walk this night? It's reminiscent of American Honey or Fish Tank here, where it's just like these escalations and near misses. The Andrea Arnold films, you know, right, how right. it's just like it's very tense all the time. It feels like something horrible is about to happen, then but doesn't. Yeah, it just keeps getting out of it somehow, right. and how it's sort of, I guess, a depiction of life as a woman. Yeah, where it just, it's an endless series of uh, yeah. horrible things. Jill comes over to the house, who we haven't seen for a bit because it's been Connie and Laura, and Jill has this warning that doesn't feel like a warning and isn't even presented as a warning. And it's so subtle that I think the first couple of times I've watched this film, I probably didn't even notice it or pick up on it because Connie is convinced that it's Jeff or Eddie asking these questions, but that's right. never confirmed by Jill who this person is. She yeah. just says a guy has been asking all kinds of questions about you. It's sort of ominous. Jill's not really a part of these excursion to Frank's. So she doesn't really know who's who probably, and never really sure, fills yeah, in true. these details. Right. And the scene sort of just moves on because Connie's not really paying attention to it, doesn't really see this as anything weird or out of the ordinary. And that probably plays into the ego and the naivete a little bit that her sister June will eventually bring up in that scene where she calls her a bitch. That's I mean, right, yes. That powerful scene. Why wouldn't this guy be asking about me? Yeah. <laughs> it's basically the attitude. <laughs> really? Like, it's nothing. Like, yeah. It's well, not I mean, anything weird. She does quite well for herself at Frank's. We'll say that. There's no shortage of attention coming yeah. up to her, yes. One afternoon or one morning, it's kind of hard to tell, Catherine and June warn Connie about what she's doing, about what they expect. It's kind of like this approach of, like, you got to cool it. You got to reel it in a little bit. Yeah, and Connie's 
still defiant. She's not yeah. really admitting to anything. She thinks because is, she hasn't gone all the way sexually right. that that sort of justifies everything. Yeah, because that's her stance kind of. She's like, well, I don't do that. I wouldn't do that or whatever. And they're kind of just like. Well, that's what she says to June later. Sure. Yeah. There's more defiance with the mother. That's like, true. As if she hasn't done anything. I think. I don't know what Catherine thinks that she's done specifically. This is where the the information about a girl getting pregnant comes up. That's right. Yeah. And Connie sort of brushes that off as like, well, that girl's a dope. I'm not a dope. Which is what everyone thinks before they get pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> it leads to her basically mouthing off to her mom about her mom's own choices. Then her mom slaps her. And I think that Connie's reaction is sort of like hilarious because she's like, you make me want to laugh. <laughs> like, who says that? <laughs> That's such a weird thing to say. Oh, yeah. You make me want to laugh? <laughs> well, I- even their moments of kindness, like, so quickly turn throughout this whole movie. Yes, and that felt very real. I think yeah. mothers and daughters do go through that stage where it is, like, so tense. And sometimes it's the mother's fault, and sometimes it's the daughter's fault. And it's usually like carryover from whatever happened before. So if one of them extends like a little bit of an olive, olive branch, it's immediately discarded because the other person's still pissed about something oh, yeah, else. Right. And it's just this endless thing. Because there are scenes that start out normal. And yes, Connie is probably lazy and doesn't help out and doesn't do this, doesn't do that. And it it grates on Catherine, What's but wrong with you that? almost feel like Catherine should just let certain things go to just keep the peace. Yeah, I for know. a minute, right? Yes, she's like, you just... can't even lift a plate. Oh, <laughs> it's like, can't you just? They're let not this my go? plates, and I was like, that's a good point. <laughs> like, what? I got to pick up other people's plates now. Well, I-, I was on Team Connie on that one. I guess sometimes in some houses. Yeah. After Catherine slaps her, she retreats to her room. She's followed there by june and there's some awkward moments there this is the first time that we even have like an extended time with june at all and that's true she sort of becomes like a an important part of the last third of the film in a way yeah there's only glimpses of her really in the beginning she's kind of comes in and out of the scenes but her presence looms heavy with the parents yes i think they cast a girl that's a little too cute for june based on the text because I look at this girl that plays June, and I think, well, she's probably had boyfriends. You think she'd be getting some attention in town? Yeah. I think the way that it's presented in the story is that she's almost an old maid already, that there's just no hope for her. She's living at home, and she's almost an embarrassment to Connie in a way because she works at the school. Everyone knows that they're sisters, and they sort of goof on it a little bit. And this girl, like, they try to make her sort of a clueless dork by recommending some movie that they hated. Oh, that's right. But I don't know. I'm never really buying it. And so this scene always feels weird because June looks so much younger than Connie that the scene is almost, like, confusing at times where you're, like, having to remind yourself that June is, like, out of high school, has a car and a job. Because Connie is like a foot taller than her and seems older than her. It's true, yeah. Which is weird. But the actress, I checked it out, and the actress that plays June is like five years older at least than Laura Dern. So they were casting age appropriate basically then? Yeah, pretty close to what it is in the story. And it's just a strange visual because she seems younger than Laura Dern. Right. But yeah, this is where she's like... 
you're not even aware of what you're saying. Another one of these character interactions where it kind of starts coming from a positive place and then spirals into a fight. I do think that June is being overly sensitive because I genuinely think that Connie is like not saying this shit on purpose. I agree, absolutely. But she is rubbing it in, basically, like, you never had anyone interested in you. She doesn't say that, but that's how June is taking it. Yeah. Because, like, oh, you know what it's like to have a boy. The boys are so nice to you, and they hold you, and they tell you they love you. And June's thinking, like, well, that never happened to me. Yeah, you bitch. (laughs) Yeah, she's just like, you bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and Connie's sort of, like, taken aback by it. Like, what what did I say wrong? Yeah, I know. She says that a couple times in the movie to different people. Like, what what did I say wrong? Yeah, it's like she doesn't, she realizes it, but she doesn't realize it. Yeah, and her obliviousness to hurting her sister and her mother and stuff, I think infuriates them even more. Oh, absolutely. Like the fact that she doesn't even know what their feelings are or how she's hurting them and stuff like that. (laughs) Connie is left home alone when she refuses to go to a barbecue with her family. Later, after hanging around the house, a man calling himself Arnold Friend pulls up to the house in a gold 1960s convertible. And this basically sets off what is the rest of the movie. Everything else until now was kind of like this day in the life. I do love the feeling of it because it does bring you back to a time which is so great in life when you're actually like a teenager and you're (laughs) off of school for the summer. Yeah, but you don't have to work. Oh my gosh, that's like the it's a fleeting time period in life, and you know that there's not much of these left. It is just like such a great time. Like, yeah, the idea of like going to the mall with your friends like every day. So now we've hit what is like the final half hour of the movie and things start to really take a turn. He dresses and behaves like James Dean. He's also with a mostly silent companion named Ellie. Yeah, always good to have a person along with you that seems like he can't talk even much. He does. He does say words, but like, there's something wrong here. There's something sinister, though, about it. Because he's almost just like, all right, hurry up and rape this chick. What what the fuck? Totally, totally. That's like his attitude, basically. Which is definitely ruining... (laughs) Arnold Friend's plan that seems like it's kind of working. <laughs> well, yeah. A I little guess. bit. Yeah. I mean, he, he's definitely got her interest peaked in the beginning. It starts to get more sinister and scary, but. Yeah, when she realizes that he's like older. Right. So, for people who haven't seen the movie, we have this semi secluded farmhouse. It's like down a road, and the rest of the family leaves. You have this 15-year-old girl just sort of laying out in the sun, sort of listening to the records, doing whatever, mm-hmm. hanging around. And then this car shows up. And for viewers at home, you're going to recognize this guy as the guy that pointed at her and said, I'm watching you. But it's clear from their interaction that Connie does not remember that at first. It dawns on her eventually, and it kind of creeps her out. Right. But at first, she does not recognize this person at all. Yeah, yeah. A big part of this movie and a big part of this scene and a big part of the characters is the performative self. You have a girl play-acting as a woman, and you have a man masquerading as a teenager. This also ties in with Connie's behavior throughout the rest of the movie, too. The pool to be a child with her family, because clearly there's times where she's sad about it, when her family's playing cards and they talk about her used to playing with them, and then it's clear that the tension between her and her mother is preventing her from just sitting down and playing with them too, even though she kind of wants to. 
this pool to be a loving daughter and sister contrasted against her desire to now be an independent woman. Connie's naivete is on display from the beginning. She's not as suspicious yeah. as she should be. It feels like right out of the gate you should be like something's up here. But at first she's kind of going along with his charm a little bit. And as it goes on, obviously like it starts to get scarier. He seems more intense. But I think you hit on it earlier. I mean, there is a charm there too. There's a confidence. There's a little bit of a swagger in the way that he talks. He shows up and he's basically like, my late? She's like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting on the bonus features to hear Joyce Carol Oates talk about the Charles Schmid case a little bit in Arizona and how clearly there was some sort of thing going on and maybe still to this day where teenagers, I think teenagers are more savvy now because of the internet and they're sort of more aware of things, but clearly teenagers were seeing things differently than how adults were seeing them because she was basically like to an adult immediately they would know that this person was not a teenager that he was an imposter that he was wearing makeup to look younger it was obvious to anyone that he was weird that he didn't fit in and yet the teenagers weren't seeing it like that right and that this charles yeah. schmidt guy was just a part of their crew you almost get like mcconaughey and dazed and confused oh, vibes. Yeah. except even those characters or like are well, aware well, that he's yeah, like he, older. He's an older dude, but we like him still. <laughs> and I think that's sort of a benefit of them casting Treat Williams is that he also is sort of able to look younger and seem younger and then also seem older. As I was telling you before we started recording, the first time I watched this movie way back when, I was sort of confused by how old Arnold Friend is actually supposed to be. I got that he Same. was older. Right. But when I found out that Treat Williams was 33 at the time and that the character and that the real-life Charles Schmid was also like in his early 30s, I was sort of blown away by that because he is so effective at not seeming that old. Absolutely. Yeah, I didn't quite buy that he was Connie's age or even no, really same, that same. close to it. I knew he was it. supposed to be older, but I'm like picturing more like mid-20s. At the oldest. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking like 21 or okay, something. Yeah. I was like, well, that's still pretty sinister because she's supposed to be 15. I mean, this is pretty dark. Right. But then when you find out like 33, you're like, oh my God. Yeah, that's downright disturbing. This scene between Connie and Arnold Friend turns into a 30-minute one-act play tucked into the final portion of the movie. This is what we've unknowingly been building toward. So Arnold is basically asking her to come out for a drive. That's what the premise is. That's why he's here. That's what he's saying to her. At first, she's not really afraid. She comes outside. She's looking at his car. They're talking about his car. Arnold name drops several teeny bopper acts and tries to appear youthful, even though over time it becomes clear that he is much older than her. He comes off very kind and friendly at first, but also rather suspicious. Eventually, he starts alternating between speaking to her in a warm, seductive voice and then also shouting insults to his fellow car passenger. Yeah. When that guy asks Arnold if he should pull out the phone, possibly to keep her from calling the police. And that's sort of what I was referring to before. Like, that guy is like, quit fucking around with right. this. Like, get this over with. E- even though it's like, well, what does this guy do with his day? Holds up a friggin' radio to his ear all day long. There's a secret code on the side of Arnold's car in addition to his name. That says thirty three nineteen seventeen, and that's directly from the short story as well. What does that mean? Never really has been revealed. Yeah. Okay. I think Treat Williams was saying it was like his high school locker combination from 
like Arnold Friends is, but okay. I don't think that that's confirmed by Joyce Carol Oates. I don't know what those numbers mean exactly. Gotcha. Yeah, but in they, a they weird highlight way, it in the movie, and it feels like it means something, but nothing's ever revealed. There's something haunting though about the numbers, in a way, like not knowing what they are. Yeah, I know. I it think make, it just it kind adds of, it's this, creepy, like uneasy mystery. Everything about this interaction, especially when Connie has come outside. The body language, the movement, the staging. There's that moment when she starts to get a little bit nervous and she starts to head back towards the house. And he keeps doing that thing where he's like dancing. It's like this dancing move where he's like cutting her off. Like he, it's just something that Treat Williams came up with. But every time she takes a step, he takes a step. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like sort of coming in at an angle to sort of block her from getting back to the house at first. I do feel like he's always still trying to keep her relaxed, too. Yes, but there's like those subtle things. Definitely, yeah. The tone of his voice doesn't really change, and he never really says anything downright threatening at first, but there's something off. That's like the important thing. It's like there's something not quite right. Eventually, he reveals that he seems to know everything about her, including that her parents and sister are away. He knows all about the boys she's been spending time with. He knows about her friends. He knows her name, who she is, where she's from, all this stuff. She doesn't even know who he is. Definitely makes you like shudder a little bit because what degree of stalking or following is going on here? Yeah. Like the, There's some things that seem strange that he would know the specifics yeah, of. Yeah, totally. I mean, in a pre-internet era specifically. There was some people that approached Joyce Chopra after the movie and was like, oh, he was the devil. He was a vampire. Like He's oh, yeah, not yeah. real. He's a daydream. A lot of people couldn't accept that he was even real. And they were completely like taken aback by that. And they were like, no, no, no he's real. Like, right. Stop with that kind of stuff. But I can see where people jump to that because he does There's seem to know seem... some things that, like, how would he know that? Right. It doesn't even seem possible because obviously the whole thing with Jill, I think, is supposed to be him. Like, he was asking everybody about her. Absolutely. But even Jill or her friends, like, wouldn't know some of these specific details about the barbecue and where the barbecue was and that. Connie wasn't going to go. And the amount of confidence over how long they're going to be there. Yeah. Well, that seems kind of weird, even to the point where they leave that other dude at the house and he goes in the house. Yeah. This whole sequence is about power dynamic. And you could sort of say the whole movie is in a way where a girl coming into her own and experiencing these things with her body and with her sexuality for the first time believes that she has all of this power and it seems to work because as you said, when she goes to Frank's, she's not hurting for attention. No, no. And that gives you this confidence, but what this scene is sort of revealing is that it's a false confidence or at least it's a confidence that doesn't get you far enough when it comes to these certain situations where the rubber meets the road. Like this is something that she is just unprepared for. Yeah. Has no idea. She's definitely out of her element. What's going on for a long stretch of it. And the power dynamic is all his. He knows all of these things about her. And seemingly at any moment, he could just grab her and force her into the car. And that's sort of what the power dynamic is. Absolutely. He has this but physical it's almost prowess. sort of odd that he's not. He well, I get that. I get that's a complete character thing. Yeah. Because... I think from his perspective, he's not doing anything wrong. Right, right. This and, is how and, he... Which is confirmed with the last thing that he says to her when he drops her off. 
Yeah, this is how he gets women in yeah, his yeah. mind. This is just completely normal, which is sort of more disturbing in Absolutely, a way. Absolutely, yeah. There's this slow escalation. Connie retreats. She eventually gets back inside the house, and then she's speaking through the screen door. And yes, there is this distinction. He does not seem interested in forcing her, overpowering her. They're alone at her house. At any point, whatever he wanted yeah. could have already happened, and it could have happened there. Which he does start calling out more and more. I mean, when the door is shut, he's basically like, this is a screen door. I could come right through this. Arnold begins speaking about how he could become her lover. Connie is scared, ordering him to leave. And there was a subtle dialogue change. A lot of this scene is lifted directly from the text, but Treat Williams decided to change some of these lines, and, and Chopra agreed, and I think it makes it even better in a way. Because in the short story, Arnold Friend eventually is like, if you do not come out, I will kill your family. Not exactly like that, but that's essentially what he says. Yeah, yeah. I will do this. I will kill your family. I will burn your house down if you do not come out. Instead, Tree Williams thought it would be better to always approach this as what if instead of direct overt threats of violence, oh, yeah. keeping it strictly hypothetical. And it actually adds this element to the character. Definitely. It goes to what I was saying where he just doesn't believe that what he's doing is wrong because he, he's like finding it's loopholes. It's all this <laughs> manipulation, yeah. Yeah, technicalities. Well, right. I didn't technically threaten you to come. Yeah. You're still coming of your well, own you free will. you said you were going to kill my family. I was like, no, I said what if. <laughs> the shot of Connie sitting tucked behind the staircase, holding the phone, debating whether or not to call the police, while Arnold stands in the doorway at the end of that little... Ugh. Yeah, Entry this is the shot I was talking hall. about. It's something special. It's a great shot. Yeah. Having her in front, sort of hidden in the, I guess you would say, shadows. and Behind the staircase. Yeah. And he's just sort of casually leaning against the door frame as if he's got all the time in the world. That is sort yeah. of what makes it creepier in Absolutely. a way that there isn't that urgency of well, like he's, he's running like, in there. This is a foregone conclusion. She's going to come out the door with me she's gonna do it semi-willingly and yeah, that his boy's like well let me just cut the phone line he's like no yeah yeah you fucking idiot get in the car <laughs> like just flipping out why are you ruining our date <laughs> he keeps calm he keeps talking she's scared but he coerces her back outside again when the threats start to become more apparent and there is an implication of a sacrifice a sacrifice for her family we don't exactly know what that is, and it's never really revealed in the movie, but you sort of can guess. Yeah. But there's almost a bravery to this decision of, like, I have to make this go away or else he could harm my family more in some problems way. down the road. Connie is going to go with Arnold. Ellie, the weirdo friend, will stay behind. I do like when he's talking about Ellie, when Arnold's friend is talking about Ellie. He's like, yeah, he's a nut. He's just a strange dude. <laughs> Yeah, he's like, he's a creep. Yeah. <laughs> he's a weirdo. <laughs> and this is where the short story ends. It's almost like the Lovely Bones or something where it's almost like this passing over, this crossing over moment of her oh, yeah. leaving the house and then it's left in such a haunting way where well, you're like, well, this, she's dead now. By the way, like the score turns more noticeably haunting as well because it's like this like kind of ominous piano music. Whereas like much of the score in the first hour of the movie is James Taylor songs. Yes. And like 
I, I can't remember who sings this, but the this, like, this cruising song or whatever that she's playing, like she plays on the jukebox at Frank's, yeah. which I was like blasting in my car on the drive over here. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, you were actually just blasting the score from Cruising, the Al Pacino yeah. movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, you know, my, my Friday nights usually. But the score has now changed to something that's like much more dark and harrowing. Yeah, the story ends, I think, a little bit more hopeless. And Chopra and Tom Cole, who did the script, and they just decided that they loved Laura so much in this part, and they loved this character, and they were like, well, we, we don't want to end it that way, in this dark way. Hearing them talk about that took away some of my theories about the end of the movie. Not that I was like married to them and thought it was definitely real, but I, I thought the possibility was there that the very end of the movie is not really happening, that it's more like a dream, but... That really isn't this kind of a movie. Yeah, right. Connie and Arnold drive to a secluded area. We don't really see what happens, but you can sort of assume. In fact, the way they do it is pretty effective because they cut to where they are as if you're going to see something. And the camera just pans over the car. They're not in the car, and it pans over like the field. And that's all you see. When she returns home, Connie is bewildered and disheveled. There is a subtle power reclamation here when she tells Arnold that she never wants to see him again. She has changed. She's crossed over. But I think you sort of believe in her power there where for whatever reason, and maybe this is just movie magic, you kind of buy it. He's not going to come back. I don't know why. That's the sense you get. I agree. You could chalk it up to he had his conquest and now it's over. He doesn't care. But I think that they want you to believe that she is now different and assertive in a way that she's sort of crossed over to this other side now. Yeah. You wish this had the the death-proof ending where the girls just started (laughs) beating him up? The film leaves it ambiguous whether or not he raped her, although it is heavily implied that he does. Yeah. Dern's feelings have changed dramatically. She gave an interview around the time of the film's release where... She said that she did not think that her character was raped and that they just go for a drive and come back. Although now she's more open to admitting that she just had to tell herself that at that time and now understands the complexity of the part and what was going on. I think that's not really unlike how real survivors sometimes process these things. They sort of realize later what actually happened was not consensual and not okay but the years in between have sort of put up walls of defense where they have to tell themselves certain things mentally and then it's not until looking back in some introspective times that you sort of understand what really happened so that's sort of interesting that it happens in the sense that it's a character yeah definitely well i mean i obviously i think you hit on it towards the beginning of the episode but yeah like that there was a certain naivete to laura dern the actress you know, given her age. Yeah, she talks about that a lot on the Blu-ray, too, yeah, yeah. and how that made things easier and better, probably, right? because she was so much like the character that she didn't quite understand a lot of the stuff and how that benefited the part. There's a dreamlike quality to the ending, and I think I did have the suspicion, because things work out so well for her in a weird way, you know, there's a couple of poignant moments here now right. that come up that I was like, 
oh god this is based off of a serial killer like is she supposed to be dead that's what i was oh, yeah. afraid of i don't think that that's how chopra or anybody involved with the film actually intended the ending to be so no. I, I sort of can dismiss that yeah i just think that this movie is is not one of that that would happen in i guess like yeah this, they want you like to be family. grounded right. in reality yeah. Her mother tearfully apologizes for slapping her earlier, but Connie reassures her that everything is all right. Well, of course, there's like more sadness to us, the viewer, because we know what happened. And it's almost like, well, if they hadn't been in this fight, maybe she goes with the family to the barbecue. This whole situation doesn't happen. There's like a lot more sadness looming over it. The film closes with Connie and June dancing to James Taylor in Connie's bedroom. She comes very close to telling June about what happened, but then doesn't. And then she sort of shakes it off and says, that didn't even happen. So right. it is life imitating art in a oh, way yeah, as yeah. to like Dern's reaction about the part and Connie's reaction within the movie, just sort of not really talking about it. Or this is like her way of dealing with it. Like it just didn't happen. I'm putting this out of mind. Yeah. The film makes it clear that this is something that she's going to have to deal with and process on her own which I think unfortunately is the experience of a lot of women, especially in 1985. Things might be better in that respect now. And I think that is what you can hope for is just constant improvement and getting better. But it's important to have these totems, these outposts, these signs along the way and to remember them and to see them. And this is one of them, this movie. It keeps it in mind because that's really sometimes the best you can do is to just not forget and to not let the stuff just go by quietly. And so movies like Smooth Talk or things like the Me Too movement or whatever have to come along as beacons of hope and change and hopefully things improve if yeah, they can't well, get completely better. Yeah, and that's why you know you, you put the messages out there. Not a lot of laughs in this episode. <laughs> no, I sort of knew that this was going to be a more yeah. serious Well, topic. it's hard, right? I mean, it's a... It's a obviously a tough situation especially the way it ends with her character and everything there's just not a ton of optimism to what's happening here but i don't have a lot of optimism about the number of downloads this episode is gonna get no but it it is (laughs) while the content is certainly dark it is a great movie yeah i hope that our listeners will check this movie out if they haven't seen it hopefully we're introducing this to some people and again, the darkness is very subtle, though, too. Well, like yes. the way the movie does it. Yeah, I've definitely seen some recent reviews of people who are kind of like, I don't get what all the fuss is about. This was kind of boring. This didn't really do it for me. So, yeah, I guess it didn't hit for those people. Yeah, for me, I, it did. I think that you have to, to get on that wavelength. I think it does sort of help to be somewhat familiar with the short story and what the short story is based on. Although, it adds, I wasn't. It adds like a more more weight to what's happening at the end more of a threat the ending is haunting but still sort of triumphant definitely different from the short story for sure which is definitely more pessimistic what are you doing what What? vincent stopped making picks well how am i gonna know what movies to see we have a wide variety of gene picks gene's trash i'm gene so let's get into recommendations and wrap this thing up. Okay. I'll go first this time since I make you go first a lot. Okay. I'm going to recommend Memories of Murder. 
the Bong Joon Ho film Ooh. from 2003. Guess what? I just ordered it on Criterion. Well, guess what? I have the Criterion and I just watched <laughs> it. Although it is available on Hulu for people to check out. So if you were a fan of Parasite, you might want to check it out. It's a completely different film, although the dad from Parasite is in it. The poor dad. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. I don't have the actors' names in front of me, but he is one of the main characters of Memories of Murder. It's from 2003. If If you're a fan of Zodiac the David Fincher film, you will probably love this movie. It feels very similar in a lot of ways. It's about a real-life serial killer in Korea that was not caught at the time the movie was made. Yeah. I think they figured out who did it after the fact. But, spoiler alert, (laughs) but that's sort of like, it leaves you that same ending of like Zodiac where you're not sure what the truth is. Do I think it's as good as Parasite? No. It would be hard to to be that good. I think that's sort of a almost a once in a lifetime type film to make. But it's still very entertaining yeah. and interesting. I'm excited to watch it, so. And it's also interesting just to see how police detectives and a murder investigation goes in a different country, yeah, like I'm what sure. they do right. and what they are thinking. These murders took place in the 80s, so it is sort of a period piece even though at this point 2003 is like its own period piece, but the murders were something that happened in the late 80s early 90s and it's it's enjoyable and i liked it so you can check yeah, it out on I'm hulu right now all right i'm gonna do one but more so we can talk about it not necessarily a glowing recommendation but how about this one for you streaming on paramount plus whoa <laughs> pretty baby uh, i just watched the <laughs> this francis ford coppola's recut of the godfather part three. Oh yeah, yeah under yeah. this different title godfather three or no, no, sorry. Godfather Coda, the, the death, death of, of Michael, Michael Corleone, Corleone, which yeah. I was like, oh man, I'm going to mess this up and say the death of Michael Myers. <laughs> <laughs> so Godfather 3 is one of these movies kind of like Southland Tales for me, where I, because it's hated, I, I have like this underdog quality where I, I think I'm a like, lot of people feel the way that you feel. I think the, they keep thinking it can't be that bad right. and they revisit it. And it, it, it is. And even like this recut, like... <laughs> There were things that were I thought were better, even though it had been years. I did notice like it, it's a little bit tighter. I was reading like they feel like they saved Sofia Coppola's performances, and it's not even like a hundred percent her. Like the, her dialogue is terrible, even like the things that yeah. she's supposed to be saying. So I, I don't a hundred percent blame like the performances on her even, but and, and I'm like no, this still really is not that great. And it, it, yeah, I think it's always funny. Uh, obviously, her performance is not good, but. If Winona Ryder had done it, it's like, it, do, do people think that Godfather 3 would be like no, beloved? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> and, and so, so there's no, she should not be blamed for the movie not being good either because it's, yeah, it's, it's sort of a mess. It's just, it's just not great. And a lot of it feels like a caricature of the Godfather series in general. But it is one of those ones that years go by and I'm always like, you know, maybe the Godfather 3 is better than. And then you go back, and, it, and I have the same thing with Southland Tales. I'll go back <laughs> and be like, no, you know what? It's really, it isn't. It's not that great. It, it deserved to have the negative criticism. But if you want to see. Yeah, not just, having Duvall. Yeah, which. was a huge blow. <coughs> they couldn't afford to pay him the money. That It's like, guys. I know, it's stupid because then the storyline that they use, that they end up using, it just doesn't carry a lot of weight. But I will throw out there to anyone, there's a little Francis Ford Coppola like intro to it. He seems to think that this recut saves it and makes it so much better. I, 
I don't. Well, what else is he gonna do? He hasn't made a movie that people have cared yeah. about in like twenty years. No, I know. Or more. And I I hate to trash him because it's certainly like when I think of myself as like a young movie fan, like getting into his movies was something that made me like go. Oh yeah, the- I agree too. But yeah, it just seems like what is the point of this? Yeah, exactly. It, it, and it's really it, it's not good. But it, it came out on Blu-ray. Was that like before the pandemic or like at the beginning of the pandemic? It came out. I thought this was just. I remember it was like available for rent on Amazon. Like I thought, like back around like Christmas time, like this. Past... I think it's been longer than that. Okay, maybe it was. Yeah. No, there was like a Blu-ray and everything that came out like a while ago. Okay. And people were talking about it, but yeah, I heard I heard basically someone review it in sort of a similar way to what yeah. you just said, where it's like a little bit better, but it's not that much different. Yeah, it's not. I don't know. I don't have the energy to want to rewatch godfather 3 and then watch that and then compare them i mean i can't no, imagine no. like a bigger waste of time yeah exactly and i'll save you the time like it's not worth it but i mean listen go out there and check it out if you want how about that as a recommendation all right so thanks for listening follow the show on twitter at greatest pod subscribe on apple podcasts podbean etc Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That would be great. If you'd like a sticker, let us know on Twitter. Follow us on Letterboxd, Zach1983. Matt Crosby, our next episode will be another listener request. We sort of have a backlog of those to get through, which will take us probably through the summer because we have other stuff planned. One Trashy Summer is right around the corner. This episode was probably a few days later than usual just to give the Romeo and Juliet one some time give everyone a chance to catch up but we're slowly working our way back to a regular schedule oh yeah so keep an eye out for the next listener request and we'll talk to you soon
Note to self, I don't want to live. <laughs>